Today, a lot of updated information you need to know about COVID-19, masks, vaccines, and adverse events. A lot of confusing things are happening with COVID-19. Not only is the virus proving to confound our best public health experts, but the guidance surrounding it and the issues with the vaccines, they're equally as vexing. Some of that's to be expected. The virus, of course, is like nothing we've ever come across before. The vaccines are naturally experimental. But perhaps the most frustrating thing, especially if you're someone who listens to podcasts like this one, is that those who are giving us guidance are pretending it's not confusing. They're acting as though we're the ones who are crazy or unscientific to be confused by what they're saying, rather than acknowledging it's all been one giant ball of confusion. We know better, so it makes us skeptical of the advice they're giving. Also, it's hard to get all the information. We've been spoon-fed particular narratives, while powerful interests, including the government, intertwined with the pharmaceutical and vaccine industry and big tech, they try to keep us from getting what's often perfectly accurate information and legitimate scientific views by calling them false or debunked. Recently on my website, CherylAckison.com, a series of articles I've written that have only 100% factual and attributed information about COVID-19, citing particular studies and sources, well, Google Ads has labeled them disinformation or debunked. Again, these pages aren't opinions or wild speculation or taking viewpoints or giving medical advice. They're often no more than a factual recitation of study statistics or a scientific study. And yet proven disinformation by CDC and other sources rampant online, that's left alone. You know me, I'm not suggesting that the bad information should be censored. I'm saying none of it should be censored. That whole idea is fraught with peril because inviting any third party in to control our information invariably leads to the place we are today where those with vested interests in the information find a way to influence it. So now we've learned that when something is fact-checked as false, it's often true. When something is declared debunked, it often means it's not. Likewise, when public health officials come up with a mandate, we've learned that it might be the wrong measure. Again, some of that is to be expected, but many mistakes might not have been made if powerful forces hadn't shaped and suppressed the full information from the beginning. Allowing everyone full access to information that's available to viewpoints, scientific opinions, well, that would help us figure this out and be more productive, rather than letting those who don't know any better or who have a vested interest in the material, rather than letting them keep the facts from us and dictate what we can and can't know. That makes it harder and slower for us to ultimately figure out the right path. The worst part is to have influential people not acknowledging what's happening right before our eyes. It's destroyed public confidence rather than retained or built it. Instead of admitting that they're recommending a course of action that may be amended later because it might be wrong, they dictate that this is the course. It must not be questioned. And thus starts the trolls and the propaganda campaign to marginalize scientists, reporters, and others who are thinking logically and critically about all this, like many Americans are. I guess it's counterintuitive for our public health officials at CDC, etc., but if they would just acknowledge what they don't know, rather than pretending to know what they don't, it would actually build confidence in their ultimate recommendations, whether it comes down to the vaccine program or other public health behavior measures. 
As it stands, many are rightly asking things such as if isolating and masking and vaccines, if any of these measures worked, why would there still be a problem? But instead of people putting their heads together and having a dialogue on different approaches, we are told, don't question what we're saying today, no matter how different it is from what you know to be true through common sense, or no matter how different it is from what we recommended yesterday. So that brings us to a couple of matters that I'm going to address here independently and without conflicts of interest tugging at us here on the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. First, we're going to talk about three separate recommendations on masking of children and school employees. I mean, recently it depended on what day of the week that you looked as to what kind of advice you would be getting. The American Academy of Pediatrics, a major medical group, recently issued new guidance recommending that everyone over the age of two wear masks when they go back to the classroom in the fall, even if they've been vaccinated. The American Academy of Pediatrics reasons that masks need to be worn by all because vaccines can only be given to those age 12 and over. A student or school worker's vaccine status may be difficult to verify, and there's concern that, as they say, quote, variants may be more easy to spread among children than adults. The American Academy of Pediatrics officials say that an added benefit to masking in school is protection against other respiratory illnesses. And then at the same time, they also recommend that all eligible people get vaccinated anyway. Now, when they issued that, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendation differed from guidance at the moment from the Centers for Disease Control, which was saying at the time, masks are only recommended for those over age two who have not been vaccinated. Since that time, the CDC reversed course on its masking guidance, and now they're recommending that people, regardless of vaccination status, wear a mask indoors in areas where they say there's substantial and high transmission of COVID-19, as well as in K-12 through schools. Now, it was back in May that the agency said that was no longer necessary for fully vaccinated individuals to wear masks indoors. Meantime, a third position entirely comes from another physician's group, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. Sounds kind of like the American Pediatric Association, but it's different. Not the American Medical Association. It's the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, which says it opposes masking of school children entirely. According to this group, quote, there is no evidence that schools are the source of outbreaks There is no evidence that mask mandates have any effect on disease spread. Masking children is harmful. Masks are quickly contaminated with all manners of pathogens. They prevent normal communication and social interaction, impair learning of language skills, and cause anxiety, headaches, and other symptoms. Several teenagers have died or lost consciousness when exercising vigorously outdoors while wearing a mask. What's the difference in these groups? Well, the first one, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is pressing for universal masking and vaccination, has accepted millions of dollars in funding from vaccine makers such as Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies. That's not to say that the advice that they're giving is good or is bad or is anything in particular. The group says that it maintains strict conflict of interest policies so that the funding that it gets from the pharmaceutical industry does not influence decision-making and policies. But that's something for you to know so that you can factor that into their recommendations. The other group, the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, which opposes universal masking, accepts no funding from vaccine makers 
insurance companies, or other corporations. When it comes to political positions, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the first one, is considered by many to be more liberal-leaning in its policies, while the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons that opposes masking is considered to be more conservative-leaning. I might add that there's been a strong propaganda campaign to controversialize the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, but they are a very credible group from what I've checked out uh, of medical professionals who are qualified in their area and membership of medical professionals who simply are not in line or in lockstep with all of the policies that come from the American Medical Association and the American Academy of Pediatrics. I think it's great to have all of those viewpoints out there. Why should we only hear what one group of medical experts thinks and not be allowed to hear countervailing opinions from other medical experts? What have I learned about some of these issues? You may know that early on I didn't weigh in with analysis or talk about some of these things much because I had no firsthand information. But now I've had the benefit of many months of talking to a lot of scientific experts, seeing which ones proved to be correct over time and which ones were not, which kind of helps you learn in the future who to trust, who to look for for accurate information. Well, scientific experts say there's no evidence that children have been significant spreaders of COVID-19 and kids have what is a statistical zero chance of becoming seriously ill with COVID-19. It doesn't mean it hasn't happened or won't happen, but it's so rare that it's statistically zero, let alone dying from COVID-19. Virologists say that most children ward off COVID-19 naturally without developing symptoms and then have greater and longer lasting immunity than what's been given by the COVID-19 vaccines to date. Additionally, as you know, there are serious side effects emerging from COVID-19 vaccines, including heart issues in young people. There's no way to yet know how rare or how common those are, although certainly heart issues aren't extremely common happening in many, many people. But the point is, if there's no benefit to the vaccine or a very short-term benefit with only risk, then that's a different calculation that should be considered if you're talking about getting a child vaccinated. Also, I noticed something that neither the CDC nor the American Academy of Pediatrics recommendations take into account the factor of many Americans having already fought off COVID-19 with or without symptoms, which results, scientists say, in immunity that's better than what vaccines can provide. And by the way, there's a lot of misconception about this next thing I'm going to say, and I didn't know this either till I spoke to qualified virologists, but... It turns out that antibody tests cannot necessarily determine a person's exposure to COVID-19 or tell whether they've had it because most people who fight off COVID-19 naturally do not develop measurable antibodies. And even for those who do have antibodies, virologists say they may no longer be detectable after a pretty short period of time. What they're saying is that millions upon millions of people have had COVID and recovered and yet are being urged, if not bullied, to have the vaccination when they already have better immunity than what the vaccines provide, according to scientists. It doesn't make any sense, and there's no acknowledgement of that when CDC makes policy announcements or when public officials urge people to get vaccinated en masse. In fact, when media reports and public health officials talk about which states have the highest rate of vaccination, which states have the lowest rate of vaccination, there is an implicit judgment in there that it's unsafe or bad when states have had less of a vaccination percentage. But in fact, 
that doesn't take at all into account how many cases have been there, how many people have had COVID and recovered or been exposed asymptomatically and have better immunity than what the vaccines provide. Vaccination percentage is not necessarily a reflection at all of how safe or dangerous a particular state is. It completely ignores the natural immunity that has been acquired by millions upon millions of people. This doesn't seem to make any sense, yet every day we're hearing recommendations and advice and policies that fail to take this into account. The judgment that's carried in these proclamations about what the unvaccinated are supposedly doing to the rest of America are really quite ridiculous in terms of looking at this scientifically, considering the fact that, again, millions upon millions of people who are unvaccinated have better immunity than what the vaccine provides because they have fought off COVID either symptomatically or asymptomatically. There's no scientific dispute that I've seen about this, and yet it is rarely, if ever, acknowledged, and that's kind of suspicious. You can look this up for yourself, but in Israel, they have reported that about half of the adults infected in the recent outbreak there in Israel were fully vaccinated. The shot commonly used in Israel is the Pfizer COVID-19 shot. So the ill people had been fully vaccinated with a double dose of the Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine. Now, none of this is anti-vaccine, nor is it pro-vaccine. This is simply the fact of the matter, information that's helpful to have and to factor in when you're making your own decisions. Again, I've never given advice, medical advice on these podcasts. This is an individual decision. Read what CDC has to say. Do a lot of your own reading. Consult with your physician who will take your own medical status into account when determining what's the best course for you. But all of this is information people should have and consider. And it's not just in Israel. Last month, 4,000 vaccinated people in Massachusetts, where they were measuring it, tested positive for COVID-19, according to health officials there. They're calling those breakthrough infections. And the pitch is, well, even if there's a breakthrough infection, most of them, most of them are fairly mild. Uh, they're not as serious, so the vaccine still helps. I'm not sure that there's a lot of data that proves that. In fact, scientists say most people in the general population who get COVID-19 will have mild cases or no symptoms at all. As of April 30th, the CDC reported that it had tracked about 10,600 so-called breakthrough cases. Surely there have been more since then. And then there's word that Pfizer's CEO has acknowledged that the coronavirus vaccine steadily declines in effectiveness to about 84% six months after a second dose and continues waning. So you may have heard that the vaccine industry is proposing a third dose, another booster, that they say will take up the immune system and the immune response to levels that will continue to protect even against this Delta variant that's proving to be so problematic. Along the lines of continued confusion, the federal government here, the Food and Drug Administration and CDC issued a statement when Pfizer talked about that third booster that said at the moment, well, we're not sure that Americans need a booster shot. So again, they're differing with the experts at the vaccine companies who do want the third booster shot. CDC and FDA are not yet convinced there's a need for it or there's evidence that it's going to help. I can't help but remark about something that's sort of an aside. People ask about whether the vaccines will continue to be free. And when we say free, they may be free to the person going in at the moment, no extra cost then. 
But we've paid for all these vaccines with billions upon billions of U.S. tax dollars. Anybody who's contributed to the tax base in this country has helped pay a lot of money to develop and to distribute and have these vaccines. Back to the talk of vaccines wearing off or wearing down after a fairly short period of time. If you listened to these podcasts or watched Full Measure, my television program, you heard a long time ago a top government virologist who is pro-vaccine, by the way, talk about this was exactly what was going to happen. None of this is unexpected or unanticipated. So again, it undermines confidence a little bit to hear our public health officials and some in the media act as though we are lurching from one development to the next unexpectedly. This virologist told us a long time ago at the front end that RNA vaccines are experimental. They don't last very long. They don't work very well. That's why we've never had one approved before. And he said they probably would last about six months or so. That's exactly what we're finding out. A point on the side of getting vaccinated anyway, the government claims that of almost everybody who's seriously ill now, hospitalized, for example, that almost all of them are unvaccinated, implying that, well, maybe the vaccine doesn't keep you from getting COVID after all, but it can keep you from getting seriously ill or dying. But the bias with which people are treating others who have not been vaccinated as if they are suspicious, they are dangerous, they are carrying something, when in fact millions of those unvaccinated people have better protection than those who've been vaccinated. If those unvaccinated people have asymptomatically fought off COVID or previously been sick with COVID, gaining that long-term immunity that so far, according to scientists, is outlasting the vaccines. So really, the unvaccinated people in some cases have reason to look with suspicion upon vaccinated people if we're going to pit people against one another. But I don't think that's a good idea in any case. One thing we know for sure, though, the only thing that a vaccination card proves is that someone has been compliant or has chosen to take the government advice or recommendation or has succumbed to the pressure from perhaps a job or the necessity to travel. It certainly doesn't prove that they're immune, and it certainly doesn't prove that they cannot get and spread COVID. Another thing worth mentioning is there are many places in America outside big cities that are not afflicted with the COVID outbreaks. CDC actually did acknowledge that in its latest mass guidance. It didn't say that everybody should mask indoors. It said that in places where the COVID cases were really rising, or had reached a certain level. Because I've traveled extensively around the country during this pandemic and outside the big cities, a lot of counties and towns are living life normally and suffering none the worse for it. So it doesn't really make sense to do what we did at the very beginning in hindsight, to apply a one size fits all approach. I did the story about Ekalaka, Montana last year. Ekalaka, Montana was the last county that I could find to get its first case of coronavirus. That happened many months after the shutdown, and they decided not to shut down when they finally got their first case. They kept their schools open. They played school sports. They had no spikes. They had very few problems with COVID. They just didn't need to take the same measures as a city like New York tried to do when they had their initial terrible outbreak. And yet Igalaka, like every place else, had shut down its economy tight 
back in the March-April 2020 time period when everybody else was required to do so. They didn't really need to. They didn't have any cases, and they suffered a lot for it, they said. The schools suffered a lot when they did it. That's why they decided not to repeat that in the fall when they finally got their first case. And remember, we've never really heard a big mea culpa from government officials when they acknowledged that COVID-19 is statistically almost never spread outdoors. And yet, what was the recommendation early on? That we all go inside and isolate. And people, in fact, were arrested in some cases if they got caught doing things like surfing by themselves in the ocean. We were shutting down the parks and the beaches and the places that really people needed to go to get out of the house to make it less likely that they would get COVID. We did the exact opposite of what we should have done in hindsight. And yet again, that's been acknowledged with studies and data, but no one has come out and said it was a big mistake. And it's not as though we want to prove that they were wrong or say, I told you so. It's that if these public health officials don't acknowledge where they were wrong and what they may not know next time, it undermines public confidence in the new guidance that they're giving at the moment. Another thing they seem to be leaving out public health officials and CDC, when they're issuing guidance and making recommendations about vaccination, they're not making a differentiation in their public guidance between the risk for young people and old people. They're not talking about the fact that young people almost never get sick or die from COVID and that scientists say if children and other young people go ahead and get their exposure now when it's virtually harmless to them and then have what could be lifelong immunity, that's better than staving it off, they say, with a vaccination that will wear off and require boosters, that has some adverse events associated with it, that could then make this person vulnerable to getting COVID when the vaccines wear off when they're older, and they could be more vulnerable to illness. For some reason, there doesn't seem to be any discussion of that. I hear that from scientists when I speak to them, but not from the public health officials who are making these blanket recommendations without acknowledging these facts. After a short break, uh, we will take a look at an analysis that I conducted of the COVID-19 vaccine's most commonly reported side effects so far. Tasks, deadlines, and projects. What if your teams had a tool that brought everything together? Trello is the project management tool that powers collaboration for over 2 million teams across the globe, including 80% of Fortune 500s. Trello brings teams together by tracking daily to-dos and provides a high-level view across projects and teams. From product development and design to support and production, Trello helps all teams move their work forward together. Thousands of IT admins around the world trust Trello to keep their work safe. With Trello, your teams will have access to hundreds of top-tier integrations they can rely on. A big reason why Trello is top-rated for employee satisfaction. It's where companies do their best work. Trello for enterprise. Learn more by visiting trello.com slash for enterprise. That's T-R-E-L-L-O dot com slash for enterprise. We are back. I recently used the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, a federal database you can access too online. I recently used it to analyze adverse event reports associated with COVID-19 so far. As of the week of July 19th, 2021, there were 419,000 
513 adverse events reported that were associated with COVID-19 vaccination in the United States and a total of about 1.8 million symptoms. To do this analysis, the database allows you to plug in parameters and get a report with results. I can't confirm that the data that it spits out is 100% accurate. I can only tell you this is what I got through the analysis that I conducted. Each symptom that's reported does not necessarily equal one patient because the adverse event reports often include multiple symptoms for a single patient. There are a couple of other caveats. Reporting of illnesses and symptoms that occur after COVID-19 vaccination doesn't necessarily mean these illnesses and symptoms were caused by the vaccine. So why are they reported? Well, the way the system works, it's designed to collect adverse events that occur after a vaccination time-wise to try to uncover any patterns of illnesses that were not captured during vaccine studies. So everything is supposed to be reported, and then the best experts will go through the data and see if there are patterns showing some of these symptoms we didn't know about that were connected to COVID-19 vaccine are connected to COVID-19 vaccine. I'll point out as an aside that years ago when I was working as an investigative reporter for CBS News, I broke the news internationally that Viagra causes blindness. Well, one of the ways I discovered that when the FDA had not reported it yet was by analyzing the adverse event reports, the reports after Viagra. And it was pretty clear to me there were also studies that suggested the same thing. And FDA eventually put a warning on Viagra, the warning about blindness. But anyway, looking through these adverse event reports can shed light on what might be happening. But again, the illnesses and symptoms that occur after a vaccine or a medicine don't necessarily mean they were caused by it. Scientists have estimated that adverse events actually occur at a rate in the general population that's many times higher than what's reported in this reporting system because it's assumed that most adverse events are not captured through the tracking system. Reports can be made by doctors or patients or family members, acquaintances, vaccine industry representatives. On the other hand, in fairness, there are some observers who are claiming that COVID-19 vaccine adverse events are not as likely to be underreported as those associated with other medicine because there's such close monitoring and widespread publicity surrounding COVID-19 vaccination. So they say, unlike other cases where you can multiply each adverse event report by 10,000 or 100,000 times to get the actual number of occurrences in the population, they're saying that's not the case with COVID-19 because we're paying such close attention that most or all of the adverse events are being reported. There have been approximately 340 million doses of COVID-19 vaccine given in the U.S. Slightly less than half of the U.S. population was fully vaccinated when I did this analysis. And we should remember that according to the CDC and FDA, the benefits of COVID-19 vaccine outweigh the risks for all groups and age categories authorized to receive it. So what I did is I took separate categories and grouped them together in a way where if you're looking through to see what might impact you or somebody you know, it would be easy for you to find. And you can see this analysis. I've pasted it to the homepage at CherylAckison.com if you want to know more. But here are the most common 
COVID-19 vaccine adverse events reported, number one most common was a category of muscle, bone, joint pain, and swelling, 128,000 plus cases of that. That included quite a few cases of pain in extremities, myalgia, muscle pain, weakness, fatigue, spasms, related disorders, arthralgia, joint pain or arthritis, swelling, joint disease, bone pain, spinal osteoarthritis, back pain, neck pain, muscle and skeletal pain, stiffness and weakness. 128,000 plus cases of that. That's not unusual, number one, after vaccination, arthritis and serious muscle and bone pain. It's also fairly common in the general population without vaccination, as you know. But the people who have reported it after COVID-19 vaccine are reporting what they say generally is a change or something new that they didn't have prior to vaccination. So that's number one. The number two most common adverse event after COVID-19 vaccine was injection site pain, bleeding, hardening, bruising, etc. That was 119,866 cases. Next, skin reddening at the injection site or elsewhere, rash or hives, 105,000 cases, more than 100,000 cases of fatigue, lethargy, malaise, asthenia, abnormal weakness, loss of energy, 89,000 plus cases of headache, including migraine and sinus headache, 68,000 cases of vomiting nausea, 68,000 fever, 63,000 chills, 60,000 pain, 49,000 dizziness, 34,000 flushing, hot flush, feeling hot, abnormally warm skin. Here's a serious one, 31,785 cases of lung pain or abnormalities, fluid in lung, respiratory tract or lung congestion or infection, wheezing, acute respiratory failure. All of this includes 23,000 cases of dyspnea. I don't know if I said that right, but it's difficulty breathing. 1,398 cases of pneumonia, 1,128 cases of respiratory arrest failure, stopped or inefficient breathing or abnormal breathing, 563 cases of COVID-19 pneumonia, 265 instances of mechanical ventilation, and 217 cases of bronchitis. Again, all of those under the category of 31,000 lung pain or abnormality reports. There are 30,000 plus cases of skin swelling, pain, tightness, face swelling, swelling under skin, angioedema, sensitivity, burning, discoloration, tenderness. Another serious category, there are 25,319 cases of heart failure, heart rhythm and heart rate abnormalities, atrial fibrillation, palpitations, flutter, murmur, pacemaker added, fluid and heart, abnormal echocardiogram. Those 25,000 cases include 3,100 cases of heart attack or cardiac arrest, sudden loss of blood flow from failure to pump heart effectively, cardiac failure. There were 22,000 cases of itchiness, 29,000 cases of sensory disturbance, including subcategories of 8,000 plus cases of tinnitus, hearing noise, almost 8,000 cases of abnormal vision or blindness, 6,300 cases of loss of taste, altered taste disorders, 2,200 cases of loss of smell or disorders such as 
smelling a rotten smell, 2,000 cases of hypersensitivity, 1,500 cases of sensitivity or reaction to light, 890 cases of hearing loss or deafness. There were 20,000 cases of chest pain and discomfort, 20,000 cases of fainting, feeling faint or total loss of consciousness, 19,000 cases plus of paresthesia, nerve tingling, prickling, including in the mouth, oral area, 15,000 cases of inflamed, abnormal, painful lymph nodes, 15,552 cases of hyperhidrosis, which is increased sweating. And now here's an important one because this is being tracked as a special adverse event after COVID-19 vaccine. 15,536 cases of COVID-19 after the COVID-19 vaccine or a SARS-CoV-2 positive test. Going on down the list, more than 14,000 cases of lip, mouth, tongue, pharyngeal swelling, ulcer, oral, pain, inflammation, burning, itching all around the mouth and lips area. 14,000 cases of diarrhea, almost 14,000 cases of pain or sense of a foreign body in your throat, irritation in the throat, discomfort or difficulty swallowing. More than 13,000 cases of sleep problems, sleep disorders, or sleep paralysis. 12,850 cases of loss of feeling in part of the body. 12,600 cases of abdominal pain discomfort. 12,360 cases of feeling abnormal. 10,000 plus cases of cough or cough syndrome. 10,000 cases of confusional state, disorientation, memory impairment, fatigue, amnesia, memory loss, 8,900 cases of tremor, 8,000 cases of nasal or sinus congestion, pain, dysfunction, sinusitis, or inflammation, almost 8,000 cases of blood pressure changes or problems, 7,700 reports of nervousness, panic attack or disorder, anxiety, 7,000 cases decreased appetite, This is interesting because you may have heard something about this. More than 7,000 cases reported of either heavy menstrual or uterine bleeding, bleeding between periods, bleeding disorder, vaginal hemorrhage, halt in period or short period in women. More than 7,000 cases of eye pain, swelling, itch, discomfort, redness, or periorbital swelling. 6,500 cases of loss of personal independence or impaired workability. Here's another category being specially monitored, 6,324 cases of thrombosis or blood clot, including 2,300 cases of pulmonary embolism, thrombosis, lung blood clot. Continuing on, more than 6,000 cases of flu or flu-like illness, 6,000 cases of something just called condition aggravated. Another special category being monitored Paralysis. There are 5,770 reports of paralysis. This includes more than 4,000 reports of Bell's palsy, facial paralysis, 685 reports of paralysis on one side of the body, 425 cases of paralysis not specified or other, 383 cases of Guillain-Barre syndrome, autoimmune paralysis. This can be very serious. I hear people often say, when they talk about Guillain-Barre, which is associated with other vaccines too, most people recover from Guillain-Barre syndrome. 
Well, I happen to have done stories in my reporting on Guillain-Barre syndrome patients, and for some of them at least, it is a terrible disorder. First of all, it's fatal for something like one in five people because in general, they stop breathing. So from the neck down, they're paralyzed and have to be on breathing equipment. Those who survive, including a soldier that I did a story with who was paralyzed after his boot camp vaccinations, they have to learn how to use their entire body over again, muscle by muscle. They have to teach how to lift their hand, move their finger. Um, I checked in with one of them that I'd done a story about maybe 20 years ago, checked in with him last week. He still has trouble walking. I checked back in with this former soldier all these years later, and he has done well, all things considered, although still has trouble walking. He finally did get a payment settlement, not only from the military, which originally denied that his boot camp vaccinations had anything to do with his disorder, but he also got a settlement that was sealed and made confidential from the vaccine court because they make it where it's very hard to see there are previous cases that have been paid out for certain disorders after vaccination. But he did receive a settlement for his vaccine injuries. Ultimately, they decided to blame the flu shot for his Guillain-Barre syndrome. In any event, 383 cases reported in this database so far after COVID-19 vaccine, and then 123 cases of transverse myelitis, inflammation of the spinal cord causing paralysis. Moving on, 5,600 cases of product administered to person of inappropriate age. I don't know if that means to children too young or people considered too old for some reason. 5,500 cases of decreased mobility, 5,000 reports of herpes, 5,000 reports of an abnormal gait, 4,600 reports of ear pain, discomfort, or infection, 4,400 reports of death. Now, I've read elsewhere that there are more than that in the database, but this is what showed up on my search. 4,300 cases of falls, 4,000 cases of unhealthy pale appearance, 4,000 cases of burning sensation, 3,900 cases of immediate post-injection reaction, 3,900 cases of high blood pressure. Here's another one of special interest, 3,464 cases of cerebral hemorrhage, stroke, brain bleeding, or something related. Those are being watched carefully. There are 3,300 cases of axillary pain, pain in the axillary artery, which is the armpit. 3,199 cases of encephalopathy or brain damage, including seizures. Again, these things are reported after other vaccinations as well and have been affiliated with and paid out as damages for other childhood vaccinations in some cases. 3,000 cases of limb discomfort or limb injury. 3,000 cases of cold sweat. 2,600 of bleeding including nosebleeds, 2,500 cases of low blood pressure, 2,300 cases of discomfort, 2,300 cases of contusion or bruises. Another one of special interest, 2,277 cases of thrombocytopenia, low blood platelet count or decreased platelet count, or red blood cell count or red blood cell deficit anemia. 2,277 of those. 2,214 balance disorder. 
Another one of special interest that's being monitored, if not acknowledged here in other countries, 2,100 cases of facial weakness or twitching, 1,800 frequent urination, urinary incontinence, urinary retention or infection, 1,700 cases of night sweats, 1,700 head discomfort, 1,700 inflammation, 1,600 cases of anaphylactic, anaphylactoid systematic immediate reactions, possibly life-threatening. That's sort of, I think, called allergic reactions sometimes. There was some special concern about that. 1,500 cases of breast pain, swelling, or tenderness, 1,500 cases of abnormal muscle tone, 1,300 cases of painful jaw inflammation, disorder of jaw, nerves, or jaw pain, 1,300 cases of blister, 1,300 cases of kidney failure, pain, impairment, or acute injury, 1,300 head injury. Another one of special interest being monitored, 1,904 cases of myocarditis, inflammation of the heart muscle, or pericarditis, inflammation of the heart membrane. 1,167 reports of hoarseness in the throat, 1,156 peripheral coldness, 1,100 cases of cellulitis, infection of the inner layers of the skin, 1,000 cases of aphasia, loss of ability to understand speech caused by brain damage, 967 cases of C-reactive protein increased in response to inflammation, 958 cases of speech disorder, 946 thirst, 844 restlessness, restless leg syndrome, 726 appendectomy or appendicitis, 648 hypoxia, deprivation of oxygen, 631 hallucination, 610 spontaneous abortion, 587 neuropathy, peripheral nerve disease, 565 toothache, 515 sepsis, septic shock, immune system breakdown, possibly leading to death, 398 hypokinesia, muted body movements, 393 alopecia hair loss, 313 electric shock sensation, 299 blepharospasm. I'd never heard this before, but it's a spasm causing tight closure of the eyelids. 285 autoimmune disorders, 244 coughing up blood, 207 asymptomatic COVID cases, 168 blood transfusions, 148 reports of multiple sclerosis, including relapses, and 124 cases of rhabdomyolysis, muscle damage that can cause kidney failure. There were many more reports, but I just synopsized the most common ones. And again, you can look at this at CherylAckison.com if you'd like to see all of them. A reminder, this is a factual recitation of data that's in this Vaccine Adverse Event database. You can search it yourself by going online on DuckDuckGo or wherever you like to search and look for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, V-A-E-R-S. There's a way to report adverse events online after vaccination or to do your own analysis like the one that I did. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast, my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.
All right, folks, all of you know the story about my crick in my neck and how I bought a MyPillow a few years ago, and all of a sudden, my neck just healed up. In fact, the orthopedist couldn't figure out what the heck had John done. I, it was simple. I just bought one of Mike Lindell's pillows, and I all of a sudden found I wasn't sleeping right on my pillow. Mike's pillows did the trick. Well, guess what? He's done it again. He's got something new. He's now introducing his new My Slippers. You want the best slipper ever, the best foot experience late at night. Well, Mike has got, he took over two years to develop this. He designed it to wear this slipper indoor and outdoor all day long. It's comfortable, it's durable. It's made with my pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue in the slipper. And it's made with quality leather suede. They look good, they feel good, they wear good. For a limited time now, Mike is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. You will also receive a free book with any purchase. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. It's a great gift, especially heading into springtime. So here, here's what you do. You go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's easy to remember, right? The promo code JUSTNEWS and you will get deep discounts on all the MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets the MyPillow mattress topper, and of course, the MyPillow towel set. And don't forget, you want those My Slippers. You gotta have them, they're incredible. Here's another way you can take advantage of this. You can call 800-951-3715 and use the promo code Just News when someone picks up. Call 800-951-3715, use the promo code Just News. Pretty simple stuff for the best slipper sheet pillow experience of your life. Acorns is an app that modernizes the way you manage your finances. It works in the background of your life by combining banking and investing into one seamless experience. Every time you get paid, Acorns can invest a piece of it. You can even get paid up to two days in advance, which is perfect for setting money aside and paying off your bills well before they're due. And every time you make a purchase on things like gas, groceries, or whatever, Acorns can round up your spare change and invest it into diversified portfolios that could grow over time. In fact, on average, Acorns users invest $490 a year from their spare change alone. Not only are these portfolios built by experts, they're customized to your current financial situation and your long-term money goals. And if you're crypto curious, you can even allocate up to 5% of your portfolio in a Bitcoin-linked ETF to diversify your investments even further. Start investing with Acorns and get a bonus $10 in investments when you sign up at acorns.com invest10. Remember to consider your investment objectives before investing. For further information and disclosures, visit acorns.com.